Hey guys, this is Mike Shields, and this week on Next in Marketing, I got to talk to two terrific guests in the news industry, Keith Grossman, President of Time, and Cyrus Crone, Senior Vice President of Business Development at Civic Science. We talked about the dual existential crises in the publishing world, what happens after we lose Trump, and what happens when we lose cookies. Let's get started. Everything we know about the media, marketing, and advertising business is being completely upended thanks to technology and data. We're talking with some of the top industry leaders as they steer their companies through constant change. Welcome to Next in Marketing, presented by AppSquire. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Next in Marketing. I have two guests this week. Very special uh, special episode of the show. Keith Grossman, my old friend, who's the president of Time, and Cyrus Crone. You are the vice president of business development at Civic Science. Is that right, Cyrus? Correct. All right. I got it right. Welcome, guys. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. So we talked about this. We, we sort of, we wanted to look at the state of digital publishing or publishing in general from, from two, two sides. There's sort of two massive changes going on at once. One very much on the content side, and this is really particularly the news category, which is the end of the Trump presidency and the Trump obsession, theoretically. And then, uh, and then also this, the the massive changes that are happening to everybody in publishing and really to everybody in digital media with regards to the way we identify customers radically changing through cookies going away and Apple changing their rules and regulation. You guys know the list. So anyway, we're going to jump around, but thank, I have two awesome guests that can give, cover both ends of the spectrum. Keith, let's start with you. You know, We're now a little bit past the Trump presidency ending. Going into this year, I'm assuming you guys were talking about this Trump bump and what what do you do about it? Is what how do you how do you plan for it? And then maybe talk about what you guys have seen so far. Sure. So you know, like we're we're in an interesting and I would say slightly differentiated uh, position, right? So as time, like one of the value sort of props, in my opinion, is that we're rather sort of like a rational centric perspective on uh, the world at any given moment. And so while Trump was covered during his presidency, um, we didn't see any like spectacular jump one way or the other. And, you know, it was very important to our edit team that, you know, over the course of the four years, and I've only been at time now for about a year and a half, a little bit over that. um, But during that time, it was very important that um, the coverage never sort of went too far away from, I would say, the median, right? And so the goal of it being that um, we knew that the world would normalize at one point, and that like this, as it related to the news media was an extreme moment. And so we never really took advantage of the fact that Glad we you knew that, one way or the other. I wasn't so sure. Well, here's, here's, here's what's interesting about the time audience, right? Uh, and these are rough numbers, but, you know, uh, roughly 30, you know, uh, 7% are registered Democrats in the United States, roughly 35% are independents, and then close to 30% are registered Republicans. Like we're a brand that, you know, is advantaged in the sense that it goes across every state line and is red in both red and blue states. And so like we didn't see an extreme left or right. Like a lot of Republicans felt that we went a little too liberal. A lot of liberals felt that we were a little too right on certain things. Um, And so like, for us, the traffic, it, we didn't benefit from the traffic, but we're not losing from the traffic. Have you seen anything change thus far? I mean, we're only, you know, how many weeks into the new presidency? Obviously, there's Trump's still in the news. There's the, There was the Capitol riots. So it didn't exactly like, you know, flip a switch and things change. But have you seen, you know, is everybody checking out now? Is there, or, or are things really? You know, so 
we had a really interesting moment. There's a, a great um, uh, a philosopher, Mike Tyson, who has this, this <laughs> quote that says, you I know, know what every, you're everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? And if you look at sort of the evolution of time as a brand, um, from March of last year, when when everything was sort of at its height and 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 coming apart, um, you know, we did a few things with the brand that really allowed us to evolve and set the stage and a foundation for um, what we are today. And you know, some of those were from the utility perspective, right? Like we were um, very scared about like how would parents you know uh, mike what do you you have 14 children now at this point right Something so like it's that, like yeah. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> it's like how do parents deal with kids being at home right and screen time so we were very keen on launching and digitizing time for kids right which had a huge sort of success factor um uh we looked at people's wellness which was why you know we leaned very heavily into launching and digitizing time for health um, we looked at people's finances, which is why we partnered with Red Ventures and we did a JV to launch Next Advisor. We looked at, um, uh, you know, people's job security, and that's why we partnered with Columbia Business School and launched Time for Learning, and then ultimately partnered with um, USC's Center for Race and Equity and launched uh, a partnership with Zoom under the Time for Learning called Race in the Workplace. On the editorial side where we really focused was on value. And we said, you know, people want to focus on certain key topics outside of the news that were things like, how do I navigate this moment in time from a COVID perspective? Um, you know, equality as a topic, youth uh, uh, movements as a topic. Um, and then in addition to the things like politics and understanding a greater sort of understanding of where it's going, the Time brand always uses the red border to ultimately capture what's happening in the world of that moment. So there's no way that like we wouldn't have Trump in that sort of uh, mix. But at the end of the day, it wasn't sort of what we were basing ourselves on. We weren't self-proclaiming that we were the, you know, uh, the opposition or, or all in on you know no. the, the resistance or something. And, and I would say that like while we were not benefited by not taking an extreme benef uh, extreme stance during his presidency. Like we are benefited right now in that, like we have our game plan and we have our strategy that we want to move forward. And, uh, you know, it didn't necessarily involve him being a key component of it. Right. Although it's funny, your covers have always resonated, but they, they took on a new resonant resonance, I think in the last year or so. And a, a lot of it was, I think he personally cared about that stuff. Like, did you guys hear that and feel that? So we know that that he he's a time reader, mm -hmm. right? And you know, as I mentioned, and and we know that you know he was an important part of of influence in the world, and you know, and that's what the Time brand ultimately does. But you know, if you were to look at um, what is the mission of Time, right? Like, what are we looking for, right? Like, it's this notion that like ultimately Time is seeking to build this better future, right? And so, our editorial focus is really on like. Um, rebuilding inclusiveness and, you know, um, like optimism, which is why you see us launching things like time 2030 tied to the UN sustainability goals. Very cool. All right. Sorry. So I want to bring you into the conversation and Keith is talking about the future. If you don't mind, let, let's go back in time a little bit because you were, you have an interesting perspective when it comes to digital news and politics. Um, I know, I know you as someone who was one, once running MSN at one time when it was part of Microsoft or I, um, or still being run by Microsoft, but you also were, were heavily involved in the launch of Slate back in the 90s. Talk about, if you can, like the early days of digital, just trying to see how digital news was going to evolve, 
and then uh, as uh, the different elections and presidencies you you were close to at that time and how different it was compared to now if you can yeah sure and keith i i think the biggest controversy you have each year is who's going to be the person of the year cover yep right like, that's a good controversy to have. Everybody, everybody wants to know. Who's People care, to. right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so in 1995, oh boy, I'm dating myself. 1995, we went out uh, to Microsoft to help start Slate.com. But before that, I was helping produce Crossfire at CNN. And you know, now you hear a lot of people yearning for Crossfire because like, can't we just have healthy debate, a moderated discussion? Isn't that a novel concept? But one of the things that we attempted to do at Slate was reinvent Crossfire and remove the moderators and just allow two individuals to come into a forum and have a dialogue and allow that banter to go back and forth. But remember, that was also in the mid-90s, uh, the height of the BBSs and uh, Echo and The Well were all the rage. And um, there were two mainstays there. And um, help help me out there because I think you've already lost me. The BBSs and Echo. Oh, Echo and the Well were forums where you know you could you could log in and post to message boards and. Oh, okay. Um, that 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 was you know pre Web one dot and um, Cyrus, if it makes you feel better, my my first foray onto the web was on Panics. And I don't know if you know that, which is wow. the public access network of New York under a Unix-based system. So it gives wow. you an idea, Mike, of what a what a complete loser I am. <laughs> I, I, I had a sense coming uh, in. But that's, oh, thank you. No, I, I, then I'm glad that I lived up to it. Right. <laughs> okay, so so you're talking, you're talking the idealism days. It seems it sounds like uh, Cyrus of, of of digital news and just discourse. Well, yeah, and the idea was that you could create these venues where people could come in and banter on any topic. And we even had this idea at the time that we could move those people from their computers into a physical location, uh, event-based marketing, if you will. And this was, you know, we, we tried online subscriptions, we tried events, and we were dabbling with things now that are commonplace. But I think that the vitriol wasn't as pronounced as it is today because of the structure of the medium and the flow in which those conversations took place. I mean, social media changed all of that, but you saw the beginnings of this. Right, because things uh, stayed in one place back then still, for the right. most part. Well, remember, there was no blogging either, so you still had uh, you, you still had a, a, a professional moderator, narrator that was involved in the editing process. Right. I kind of think 2008 was a was a landmark moment in terms of digital news and political news really blowing up. But I, I don't know if you saw like there was a moment in time where you saw okay this is going to be bigger than we might expect. This is going to shake up the way this industry is covered. Or was there was there a moment that you remember? Yeah, in fact, we were trying to hire Matthew Drudge to come work for us. Wow. Um, in 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 Redden, and uh, true story, uh, fedora fedora and all. This was two weeks before the Monica Lewinsky story broke. And after he went through the entire interview loop, he proceeded to tell us that he was going to be bigger than anything we were going to do and um, just keep our eyes on him. And a couple of weeks later, the Lewinsky story broke. And that was really, I think, the first example where digital media and politics converged and changed the changed the narrative. Does it bum you out what, where, where things have gone, where the, you're right, the discourse has gotten... Uh, so out of control and and the um 
you know, the, the bubble thing has become such a problem in our society. Like, is, is, did anybody see that coming back in those early days? When we opened the, well, be unfair for us to take credit for blogging, but what we realized was we had writers in so many different time zones across the planet that in some cases it just wasn't practical um, for an editor to be there to review and post the copy. So we thought, let's just give the keys to the kingdom to the writers. And uh, the first person we did that with was Mickey Kaus and his Kaus Files offering. And once we realized that you could just bypass the entire editorial process, I think we realized uh, the implications of that right the inst in instantaneous today, yeah. nature w was becoming apparent that you know the, you didn't have to have all those layers like when you, that are there when you put it in a magazine or something well that's why people uh, clamor for time because they want they want that professionalism they you know yeah you can you can find um well there's a lot of good stuff out there but you can find junk anywhere well you know you know you bring up a great point which is that you know we're at this moment where the sort of keys or the tools to create content are ubiquitous right everyone has them and so um you know like in a world of infinite sort of uh ability to publish or infinite content you would think it would be a dream but it actually is almost debilitating nightmare it's a paradox of choice right and so for us at time like we have to lean into the fact that a um, when misinformation and distrust is rampant, like we have 98 years of trust, right? That's a huge advantage that we have to lean into. And then second, like that the the goal of time, while like a lot of people will say Time Magazine, because that's the brand that they know the most, it actually is the brand that has the smallest footprint of our entire organization, right? It has the largest impact, smallest footprint. But the red border of time is what acts as the filter that says to people, come to us and you know that you're going to get this type of perspective, right? And that in this day and age is really, I think, the value proposition of any brand, not just time, which is a trusted filter against a world where there's infinite content and it can become either dangerous or debilitating to have access to everything all at once. Yeah. And I call trusted uh, sources reliable narrators of the news. And I think we're moving back towards a period where people expect that uh, because people can't believe what they read anymore. And so who can I go to? And, um, you know, with the launch of some of these new technologies, we're moving more towards a cult culture, which is interesting. And um, that changes the world from influencers to cult-like figures. And we'll see where that goes. Yeah. I mean, you know, Cyrus, because you bring up such a good point, which is, is like in any given moment of time, if you look at a short enough time frame, you could see how the world can move very far away from the mean. Right. And then over a longer period of time, right, like it always adjusts back to the mean plus or minus a little bit. Right. Like you don't know if it's plus or minus one, plus or minus two. And like, but it's not as if over long periods of time you see unbelievable radical shifts in terms of what consumers want in terms of trust and truth. But at any given short period of time, one year, four years, you could have extreme swings. And that's where I think, you know, your first question, Mike, is such an interesting one about sort of the Trump bump versus not the Trump bump, right? As long as you stay consistent and you think, what is it that has allowed brands to navigate moments like this historically, I think that's what will ultimately allow you to navigate things forward. And, you know, the example I would give, and I apologize for the long soliloquy on this, but like the, the example I would give when I 
um, initially took over the brand was uh, in my role as, as president with Edward uh, Felsenthal, our CEO, was asking a lot of people, like, what should I think about? What should I consider? And a lot of people said, there have been crazy times in the past. What was consistent about time through all of the 98 years that there was crazy moments where there were extreme moments and then focus on that? Although, yes, you're right. There have been cr- times of crazy stories or very intense news cycles, but I don't know if we've ever had this where there's the technology is, is going faster than we can explain how how um, you know algorithms dictate what people see. And then there's this just massive distrust. In, there, there are people that are probably, no matter what you write, are going to say you're fake news and don't believe what? you. And that's Totally. But here, like to, to counter, like, like prior to the internet age, there were just people who just didn't get information, right? So like that's just as bad as getting too much information, I would say. That's true. Well, you- if, I could, if I could pick up on that too much information, please. Uh, there's such an abundance of input now that it's, it's more challenging to separate fact from fiction. And to Keith's point, you know, what do I need to know and when do I need to know it? Um, remember that social media was going to be this great mechanism to intuit what the population was thinking or feeling at any given time. And social listening tools introduced the, you know, facets of, of approaches to listening, but um, market research is, is, is ultimately, I think what's going to separate the noise from reality. And that's, that's how I spend my time. I know we'll get into that later, but um, we all moved away from that notion that, well, Twitter is going to give me a pulse of the population. I'll be able to make all of my decisions based off of that sentiment. Well, that's a, such a small size. Right. Slice. Biden would never be president if you just went by the, the you know, the loudest voices on Twitter that are from the, from the left or whatever. There's a lot, a lot of examples of that. Keith, uh, come, coming back to this post-Trump era, you guys didn't go all in and, and like where you're living and dying by his coverage and launched like 12 podcasts just on that, on the Mueller report or something. But Inevitably, think you know we're in a different spot now, where we've got a new president, seemingly calmer in terms of there 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 aren't the daily outbursts in the news cycle, but there's some serious stuff going on. How do you guys figure out? Okay, we have to cover people are are the the pandemic could not be more serious. Um, The ramifications are massive, but people are fried. It's a negative story. People are dying. Like, how do you figure out the line of what? You know, how do you, you got to inform the world about what's going on where things are headed, but also it's mm-hmm. tough to grind. So, no, no. I mean, you know, this is, this is my first pandemic. I think it might yes. be, you know, and I hope it's my last, but I actually, I'm fearful it might not be right. And, and this is also sort of, uh, you know, a series of real serious issues all coming together, right. At the same time, like it's, uh, from an economic perspective, the stock market might look great, but it's not a good economy, right? Like, uh, like we're dealing with um, a really serious, um, scary time for a lot of people. And, um, you know, I think to, to your point, you know, what we try to do at the end of the day is um, uh, think about, does the brand provide value or utility to its readers and to, to anyone who supports the brand? And when we think about value, when we think about utility, you know, it's like, does it solve a problem? It's the stuff that I had addressed earlier. But when we think about value, it really is, is like, can the person walk away and be smarter about the situation or about how to navigate the situation? And, you know, a really great answer to your question would be, I think, the um, special report that we put out yesterday called Women or titled Women in the Pandemic, right? And Well, well, Women's um, International Women's Day. 
and and we publish it on International Women's Day, but it's the cover story of the magazine. It's the you know uh, top story on on the website. You know, we did a summit, um, a Time One Hundred Talks summit. Uh, you know, um, uh, online and, um, and it's distributed through all of our social feeds. But the whole premise of it was last year was one of the worst years ever for women. Um, and like, here are a series of stories of women who persevered and like, here's the challenge that they faced and here's how they persevered through it. And I think that the stories were so sort of heartfelt and tough at times to, to stomach, but then at the end of the day sort of provided the path forward for a lot of people that I think will be inspirational um, is how we've covered it to one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, we have time health, right? And um, we, we've covered the breakthroughs. We cover misinformation, right? Like that's a huge sort of area that I think Alice Parks and Elijah Wood and, and others on the health team have done a great job with, which is simply saying, like, these are really important stories. This is what you need to focus on because this is real. Like, if you can get any of the vaccines, just get any of the vaccines. Like, don't don't worry if it's this or that. When Johnson & Johnson's vaccine came out and it said 68% effective and the, the press spun it one way, like, they were very quick to explain, no, 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 no this is a legitimately good solution. And this is why you should not look at that one number. And so I think that where we've divided our coronavirus coverage into is um, sorting through misinformation or providing sort of stories that show how people have navigated this successfully. And then we have also highlighted stories of, of you know, the, the realities of it, you know, um, the unfortunate passings of people. Um, because at the end of the day, what time captures is the moment, right? You have to be able to look back at a time cover or, or a time story and be able to fully understand that that's what the world was like at that moment in time. And right now it's, it's, it's a sad, a sad place. Right. Cyrus, this is a, a major shift in gears and conversation, but I wanted to kind of talk about what's going on in the publishing business at large. So first of all, tell us about, I don't know if everyone knows civic science, what you guys do and then maybe what kind of pub conversations you might be having with with people in the advertising and publishing industry industry going into this year? Yeah, sure. So Civic Science is a modern market research firm and been in business a little over a decade. We work with publishers across the spectrum and tap into the re real time sensibilities and attitudes, behaviors of individuals who want to voluntarily share their feedback in a uh, poll form that's snackable and uh, no incentives are provided. What's interesting about where we are today and the journey of the company is that for years, people were asking civic science to collect email and phone numbers. And, you know, the more PII, the better. And who were they? Are you talking about advertisers or publishers? Who was who were your customers that were all of the above? Because remember, as recently as just a couple of years ago, it was how, how much PII can I collect, and how quickly times have changed for the better. But where we sit today, and where we're helping uh, publishers in particular, is figuring out this new world of first party and how everyone's going to thrive in a post third party cookie world. So on that on that note, Keith, you know, last week Google uh, made a lot of noise with announcing that they're not going to um, support any more targeting or one to one targeting outside of their walls, and they're probably not going to join the 
many of the um, the unified attempts at an industry wide identifier. I'm assuming that you guys are it, are not like all of a sudden scrambling that day that comes out. Like, oh my god, what do we do? I'm sure. I'm assuming you're preparing for this life beyond cookies and other identifiers. So, like, okay, where, where like c- coming into this year, are you already well past? Are you trying to plan for a a, a world with way less targeting? Are you trying to become? You're a subscription company already, so I'm sure you probably have a, you're leaning into that. What's going on with you, you guys, in terms of identity? Sure. So, I, I mean, one of the funniest things about time, and and I've been very public about saying this, is, um, you know, I joined, boy, what uh, July of of 2019, right? And you know what the brand was when. I came in was really an editorial team and a brand, right? It didn't have a uh, major digital infrastructure. It didn't have um, uh, incredibly robust data collection. And so- Because you, know, you were, you were I'm sorry, you were, in, you were in the business of selling an audience, selling advertising. You weren't necessarily in the, the business of- No, actually, because we were in the business of, of a brand that was sold uh, three times in three years. And finally, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to be- you know, purchased by incredible owners between Mark and Lynn. And, and, and so, so we've been ramping up investment on infrastructure and developments. And, you know, if you've been watching some of the stuff that we've been focusing on is, is just like cleaning up a lot of our site and our back end. And what that means is, is like a year and a half ago, we had no data. And so this is an instance where, uh, us being, I would say the last of the Mohegans into, uh, you know, this space is actually our advantage because uh, when we brought our CTO on board and he brought, you know, his team on board and continues to staff up on board, um, uh, you know, we brought in people who were outside of the media industry and we just focused and said, you know, don't try to play any gimmicks or tricks like privacy is real. The consumer experience is real. Start to build, uh, you know, what our data infrastructure is today based off of, um, uh, you know, what we know is what consumers are willing to give to us. And Cyrus, to your point, I mean, there's so many different regulations that like, if you are literally going to go letter to the law and not to the extreme of like, what is in the consumer's interest, like you're ultimately going to find yourself constantly scraping back, you know, what you have, what you have, what you have, as opposed to slowly building up from, from a base of trust with your consumer and trust ultimately, at time is, is our number one value. Well, and it gets back, I'm going to go back to that reliable narrator comment, which is, I think people are more willing to provide information and share personal insights about themselves when they know that they're on a trusted media property that they respect and know that their data is going to be honored in that same vein. So, um, you know, that that's, that's becoming more important. So you don't think we're, I, I wonder if, if we're going to go towards a world of login fatigue, uh, and, and first of all, it's hard to know. Okay, like tomorrow cookies go away and and nothing changes. I, what does the web look like? I don't know if everyone anyone knows that answer, but you know, if you're not, it's it's one thing if you, if you subscribe to a handful of publications, but are are we going to be forced to you know log in and have a relationship with every single publication on the web? And is that going to be a good thing? No, you know, like I, I think that you bring up a great point. Like the login fatigue, streaming fatigue. I mean, how many streaming services do you have at this point, right? Like, uh, like I think I have six, right? Like, there's a point where it has to. The unbundling will rebundle in some sense, but like we just launched uh, subscriptions on Time.com, right? Literally, when I say just launched, 
I, uh, February 3rd. And, um, uh, you know, like we're not asking people, we, we say, if you want to create a time.com login, fine. But like at the end of the day, if you want to use your, you know, Google login, your Facebook login, your LinkedIn login, these are the Apple, like these are the things that have already won as it relates to login. And so like allow people to log in and then allow people from there, you know, in their comfort zones to then I'll volunteer whatever information they want from there. But like, I, we're not going to try and say, no, you can't use the existing logins that you have that are becoming universal and ubiquitous. Like we're treating those logins as, as utilities. Well, and remember, big, hearkening back to yesteryear, there was the debate over implicit versus explicit personalization and needing to be logged in in order to garner the insights. And, you know, my Yahoo, my MSN, my AOL. I mean, they were lucky if they got half a percent of their install base, user base, to log in. And the walled gardens are a hundred percent, and people, you know, push, push them back on that. So we'll find a we'll we'll, we'll find a happy medium. But Keith, do you think you're going to see a, a situation where you're going to have to? You're, if you get people to log in, but they're not using your login, if you if you're relying on partners you're going to, are you blind to a certain degree to who your customers are and can you do attribution and the stuff you got to do to, to make your business thrive? Is that going to be a compromise? So, so no, it's like they log in once and then we just ask for some basic information after they log in once and then it's never done again. Right. So it's, you know, it's not, it's not on platform is easier than off platform. Like I couldn't claim that I, have solved off platform. I think everyone is sort of working through that, but on platform, you know, you could use your ubiquitous login and then you just give a little bit of information as to who you are. And then we're, then we're sort of, we all feel good. Sorry. Here's kind of how I've been looking at the future of publishing. And tell me if I'm wrong. I, I, I feel like publishers are going to have to either sort of, they want to be like the New York times when they just go all in on subscriptions. They've got a very upfront relationship. That's very, very sticky with consumers or if you're a BuzzFeed, who's you probably they they've said they're not going to be a subscription company. They, their content doesn't lend themselves to that. You got to you got to nail e-commerce and branded content and getting selling video IP to other people, or it's going to be really tough to to thrive in the in the post cookie world. I, I don't, am I looking at the right way? Is that are those, are those two extremes? So so I so I don't think I don't think that there's a right way or a wrong way. Like I think that you have to ultimately um, think about like what is the expectation of the consumer from your brand, right? And I think that in some instances, right, like you look at the New York Times, like the New York Times has great crossword puzzles, great cooking, right? Like, and they do a lot of subs off of those in addition to their news. If you look at BuzzFeed, they have great commerce, right? And like people expect to go there and, and to buy stuff. You know, when we look at time and we think about time, right? Like the areas, and I could show this to you, but like it's it doesn't work as well over a podcast, but you know, like Mark Benioff, our owner, has an approach called a V2 mom, where he really asks you very cleanly to think about what your visions are, what your values of the brand are, what the methods are that you're going to use to succeed, what the obstacles are that are in front of it, and what the measurements are. And he put us through this exercise, and we started to really think about this. And, you know, what I'm holding up for everyone that's at home is, is the V2 mom for the next three years of time, leading up to the 100th anniversary. But like, as you can see, I, it's all on one page, Right. Um, what we did when we distributed it to the whole staff, and it's a public document, was we re just redesigned it as a time cover, right? But what you could see is, is that ultimately over the next three years, like the methods that we're going to use is 
we're going to focus on our team and our organization. And now that we are a fully independent organization, make sure that we have a world-class team. We're going to focus on the content and ensure that the content is at, at the highest possible caliber. We are going to look at our digital transformation, which means that like Time, which you might say Time Magazine, has so many different ways in which it can interact with its consumer. So like, what does that look like from a digital perspective, not just as a dot-com? We're going to look at subscriptions, right? And the reason is, is when you look at publishing, there's really just two main ways that you can make money in publishing. Episodically, you know, which is what marketers are, which is what uh, selling sort of collectibles or e-commerce are um, uh, uh, and the likes. Or you could look at annuities, which is what subscriptions are. But we're also, we're not playing in either or. We're also going to look at what our marketing partnerships are. And then we're going to look at turbocharging studios, right? And new product development. Now, in the case of studios, right? Uh, studios did not exist for time in 2019. And Ian Orifice, leading studios, has grown studios into a significant eight-figure revenue stream for time. In a couple of years. In two years. Yeah. Two years, right? And, and when you look at that, what it means is, is that like we have a tremendous sort of infrastructure to do video content. Now, not everyone can do that, right? Like in the case of the Atlantic, they chose to move away from video content, but like they're doing excellent work in text-based content and other types of content. In our case, video is key to our strategy. And so when you look at the time brand and you think about things like person of the year, as you joked about with me in the beginning, Cyrus, or you think about the time 100, the reason that we're leaning into some of these franchises, they're so recognizable and they can exist on platforms that are outside of what you would expect them to be on, which is why at the end of last year, you saw um, Person of the Year on uh, eight, on uh, NBC. You saw uh, Time 100 uh, on ABC. You saw uh, Kid of the Year on Nickelodeon and on um, uh, uh, CBS through Viacom. And like we'll continue to lean into broadcast distribution, but then also the Netflix of the world, which is why we did deals with Magnolia to do Good Trouble with John Lewis in that documentary, which is why you saw Year in Space with Netflix. Or yesterday, you would have seen that um, we have a partnership with Procter & Gamble, Alma Haral, and, um, and on the heels of our Time 100 Women of the Year franchise that we're going to be broadcasting into a series on Amazon. So I don't think that there's an either or when it comes to publishing models. I think that like you have to think, what is your brand's strong suit and how do you lean into that? Sarah, do you want to jump in there? I wonder if you, if, if you think, you know, not everybody is time and has Mark Benioff. Like, are you, are we going to see a lot of publishers stumble with trying to, you know, turn, become direct to consumer brands when they haven't been and trying to figure out how to get people to log in and manage first party data? Or is it going to be, are there going to be a lot of avenues they can take? Well, I'm in favor of diversification, primarily if you look at what's occurred over the last year. Look at how many publishers doubled down on events yeah. and the revenue that was being generated there. Uh, only so many pe people can be in so many places at one time. So that was bound to uh, you know, get too big. But uh, the approach of looking at OTT and all these different facets, uh, I, I think it's critical because I wouldn't put all my eggs in, in one basket. And, uh, you know, 5G is going to change, change things. Blockchain is going to change things. You know, Civics recently shut down their platform, but they had journalism coin. 
And I, I think as publishers begin to think about the value exchange between the merchant, the consumer, the reader, and what does that future state look like, uh, coin may play a part in that. So a, a time marketer is going to provide um, some percentage of some value in exchange for contributing to their offering on social. And then how, how does that return back in the form of a discount you know, for a, for a subscription, um, I leave that to to Keith to worry about. We're we're at Civic Science constantly studying everything because everything's constantly changing, and we're able to tap into the um, sentiment of the populace in you know quasi real time to understand what is their propensity to subscribe to a, a product or sign up for a newsletter or purchase e-commerce. Right, so we're, we're that's where we're able to help. The publishers is uh, right alongside their strategies and then tap into how um, their audiences are feeling. And then that cycles back into market intelligence for their insights and, and marketing goals. But without that real time understanding about how the marketplace is constantly changing, which it always is, um, you know, your, your, your best laid plans go to waste if you don't know what direction yep. the audience is, yep. is moving. So. And and I mean, you bring up. I'm sorry. Can I just like uh, on the heels of that, right? Like like you bring up such good points, Cyrus. First off, um, you know, uh, there's so many technologies that are on the uh, verge of mass adoption, right? Some are very early, right, as it relates to mass adoption, but some are really on the cusp. Like five G's on the cusp, and I think one of the biggest mistakes that we often see in the publishing industry is the way in which uh, people apply new technologies, uh, apply their brand to new technologies is the way in which consumers engaged with tech, with tech, the previous generation of technologies. And I think that when we get the 5G sort of rollout complete, like I don't think that people fully understand what brands capabilities are as it relates to engaging with the consumer and vice versa. And so like, I, you know, I'm very bullish. I've I've always been an optimist when it comes to uh, the media industry and the golden age of media. But I also think that um, it's a scary time for people who wish that it was what it used to be. Whereas, like, if you love that it's consistently changing and you're willing to listen to the marketplace and see what's a trend and what's a fad and sort of separate those two out and lean into the trends, like, I think that this is just an amazing moment. The trick, though, is, is you need to have really smart insights to be able to guide your decisions. And Keith, I'll, I'll on that note, and I'll, I'll close this on this question. It, it, you you mentioned how it's not easy to figure out how to make money always off platform. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm assuming you mean distributing your content on Facebook and YouTube and other places, but you always want to be doing the next new thing. How do you balance that? I'm, I'm assuming you've having conversations. What do we do? Do we do, do we do Clubhouse? Do we get on there now? Is there any money we make? Do we do TikTok and Pinterest and everything else? Like, how do you figure out how to balance all that when you're trying to? also rejigger your whole business. Sure. So, so I, I, I did, so I said it was tough to deal with, with the logins, not, not make money. Right. Um, be clear, but yeah. I will address money. I will address money for a second because, you know, um, when I was at Wired, um, as you could see on my wall behind me, you know, we were very quick to pull off of a lot of platforms, uh, because we wanted to make sure that we owned the relationship yep. with That's our audience. Magazines had always had that. You don't want to lose that. But. And, Totally. And that was, that was pre 2014. And then, you know, when I was at Bloomberg, um, you know, we were very, 
uh, reticent to move into other platforms, except I would say that Twitter was an amazing partner to us. And, you know, Twitter and Bloomberg made um, a very, had a very successful relationship from a monetary perspective when we launched TikTok, which is now QuickTake. And so I think that the question really is, 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 um, uh, where do you want to make money and how do you want to make money and where do you want to direct people back to the brand and where do you want to um, uh, try to just monetize off platform? Um, I, I, I have no problem. Like I see tremendous value with uh, Twitter as a partner. They've been amazing to me personally, historically, in terms of coming to the table with insights and, and, and great revenue deals. Um, I would say when it comes to something like Clubhouse, it's so new and it's so interesting, but it's not so new, right? So it's like, I've been playing with it. And what I find the most fascinating aspect of Clubhouse is not how do you um, monetize it with advertisers, but rather how do you humanize your brand on it, right? And then ultimately use that to drive community, which hopefully drives subscriptions, right? And so not everything has to come back to, to how do I insert an advertiser message into this? Like in some instances, yes, 100%. But in others, in the case of Clubhouse, like I think it's more about, um, you know, how do you humanize the brand and, and give people right. access behind the scenes? Demonstrate thought that- leadership in a different forum, not just shoving totally. pre-rolls in or whatever. Well, guys, this was terrific, awesome, wide-ranging conversation, very topical. Thank you so much for your time and your patience with my moderation here, but uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. Mike, it was great to see you. Cyrus, so nice to meet you. And uh, Yeah, you and, too. Uh, keep up the great work and keep 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 journalism alive. We all need it. I hope so. I, I agree. I'm, I wholeheartedly a, agree. All right. That's a testament to Edward Felsenthal and Sam Jacobs and team. So Thanks so much. Thank you. Have a great one, guys. A big thanks to my guest this week, Keith Grossman, President of Time, and Cyrus Crone, Senior Vice President of Business Development at Civic Science, and of course, my partners at AppsFlyer. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate and leave a review. We have lots more to bring you, so be sure to hit that subscribe button, and we'll see you next time for more on what's next in marketing.